0: Hello, and welcome to the World in 30 Minutes. I'm Mark Leonard, and over the holiday season, we're bringing you a special series looking at how the things that bring us together, like trade, technology, the internet, migration, can also tear us apart. My work has been built on a rising tide of internationalism. But in 2016, with Britain voting to leave the European Union, Donald Trump winning the White House, I felt the tide went out. And like many, I thought I was shipwrecked. And I started writing a book about how I could make sense of the world that we're in, and the broken promises that many of us had taken to heart over the, the, the decades before then. As I went further into the book, I realized that this wasn't going to be the plea for openness that I thought I was going to be writing about at the beginning. But rather, I realized that all of the good aspects of connectivity are inextricably linked with the the bad ones. So rather than eradicating connectivity's dark side with a new grand design for the world, I came to the conclusion that we need strategies for, for shaping and surviving this new reality. And I ended the book. Uh, which I called The Age of Unpeace, with the idea that we need a a new course of therapy for our connected world. And that's the idea behind these podcasts, It's therapy for internationalists. So in this series, I want to take a more therapeutic approach to international relations. I'm going to be talking to guests who have experienced a a similar journey uh, on many of the the big topics which uh, bind the world together. And we're going to discuss Questions like why did the, the globalist dream of one world go wrong? Why have the world's great powers been competing with each other rather than working together on COVID-19, climate change, global migration? Will China and America go to war? But above all, we're going to try and delve more deeply into some of the core facets of globalization and the the, the ties that bind us together. And each week, I'm going to have uh, one or several guests to, to dive. Uh, into these topics. And this week, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by my friend Parag Khanna, who is the founder and managing partner of Future Map, which is a data and scenario based strategic advisory firm. He's also uh, a best selling author, and he's just written uh, a book about, well, called Move looking at the the forces that are uprooting us. Um, And I think migration and the movement of people has been a central part of globalization for millennia, but it's also in many ways, one of the the most politically sensitive aspects of globalization today. Parag and I um, first got to know each other in, I think when you were living in Washington, but Parag's lived in pretty much every continent Um, since then. He's now sitting in, in Singapore. Um, and we've also been on a bit of a journey together, going to Davos, going to other places where globalists um, hang out together. Um, why don't we start with this sort of big picture prog? How, how do you see the world at the moment and how does it um, relate to the world that, that we thought we were going to be living in when we first met at the turn of the century?
1: Well, it's great to join you again, Mark, and uh, congratulations on launching this new podcast, which has a very intriguing and very relevant, timely, and absolutely essential theme. And I look forward to this joint therapy session with you. Uh, God knows I wouldn't want to do it alone. So let us stand shoulder to shoulder uh, in this uh, therapy process. So, where is the world right now? I would say, if we want to be kind of objective and, and kind of aggregate different trends, we would say that the world. Um, you know, remains globally connected and is getting more connected in a number of ways, but is also fragmenting, particularly along regional lines, and in some cases within regions. So there's no denying that, for example, starting in the uh, you know 2010s, in particular, um, we were already before Trump, I should add, and uh, you know, and before. Notions of a new Cold War and decoupling between the U.S. and China were already headed towards a regional paradigm. The U.S. trades more with Canada and more with Mexico uh, bilaterally than it does with China, right? And that was true on the eve of the pandemic. Uh, Europe obviously represents the most internally integrated region, and and you're and Asia. Asian economies have signed this regional comprehensive economic partnership that goes into effect in January 2022. And 65 percent of Asian trade is within Asia. So just on the trade dimension, you see similar trends around investment. And now in the post-pandemic world, you might see similar trends around migration, more regional than global. Um, It always was. But there was a time, again, going back to the time when you and I started hanging out, where jet setting across the continents and lots of uh, Western expats in Asia and vice versa was very much the norm. Um, but now we'll see more regional patterns in so many of these dimensions, which is not to say that you will not have a global finance, global capital markets, global technological penetration, uh, you know, global mobility, cloud-based, you know, sort of SaaS companies and all of these things. You will also have those, things at the global level. But regionalism is becoming very, very pronounced. So I just want to let me just throw that out there as the shape of the world, if you will, it's lumpy along these regional lines. And I would say that's not a radical statement, because in many ways, it always was. But in terms of contradicting the kind of teleology of a flat, you know, kind of globalism, this is probably the most, you know, again, objective uh, undermining of that Trajectory that that I can think of right now.
0: So the book you've just written looks at, at mass migration, which, as I said, isn't a, a new phenomenon. Um, you're one of the most mobile people uh, in the world. You've been to over a hundred countries. You dragged your well, I don't know if you dragged them, maybe they dragged you. Your young children to <laughs> every corner of the planet. Um,
1: <laughs> um,
0: but um, how do you see uh, migration changing? Is it has it uh taking on different shapes than what you thought it was going to do when you were uh, when you first started um uh, your uh global jet setting and and, and trotting, um you know as a as a as a very young man
1: well i'm I'm not sure I want to reflect back that far, uh, but you know just looking at from the beginning of taking
0: on this research
1: project to completion, I stumbled upon some very novel migration trajectories that are unfolding that a point to new vectors of you know again human globalization, which is what migration is to some degree, new patterns that haven't really previously been experienced, and they are very much the embodiment of globalization. So to the extent that you want to construct a globalization basket, and to the extent that migration is one of those vectors, let me remind everyone that if you go back to the 18th, 19th, 20th, and now 21st centuries, the the volume of migration has expanded from the millions to the tens of millions to the hundreds of millions, and perhaps in this century into the billions. So the decimal point does keep moving to the right. So you can't say that globalization is dead while also recognizing this obvious fact that migration is expanding. The number of migrants um, is growing even if as a share of the world population, it's steady. Uh, And the the only reason it's steady as a share of the world population is because the world population quadrupled over the course of the 20th century. Now, one of this is one of those areas where you want to have, you know, basic uh, knowledge of stats and arithmetic, because in the question, sensitive questions of migration, the volume matters a lot more than the percentage. The fact that there are 1.5 billion people who cross borders every year, the fact that there are 300 million people living outside of their country of origin, that these are record numbers is an absolute fact. And that should be our point of departure and appreciating that that dimension of globalization remains really important. Now, in terms of the directionality, here's some of the novelty. You have um, millions more Asians in Western Europe, excluding the UK, which already has a lot of Asians, than you've ever had before. So you have this Eastern Eurasia to Western Eurasia migration that is unprecedented in human history. There have never been you know, four, five, six million Chinese, Indians, Bangladeshis, Thais, Indonesians, Vietnamese in Western Europe. Right, not even the in the heyday of any kind of colonial circulation. Did you have anything of the sort? And those numbers are growing because Europe is actually attracting Asians to fill certain labor shortages, even recruiting them as students. It needs IT professionals and so on and so forth. So that's interesting one. Climate migration is obviously a, a, a huge driver of this phenomenon the further we look into the future and even in the present, quite frankly. So Africans and Arabs moving north and northwest, uh, again, South Asians moving into Central Asia and maybe even Russia and each human being That crosses a border represents some data point of globalization and the fact that that number is expanding into the billions and that it's pushing into new geographies than we've literally ever experienced in the history of our species is something that's worth discussing for sure even if uh, people don't consider that as important as counting the number of container ships that come in and out of ports every single year
0: so as you say migration is growing to historically unprecedented levels. And at the same time, the backlash to migration has been growing um, almost as as fast. This is a period where, uh, you know, razor wire fences are propping up everywhere, walls uh, in dozens of countries around the world. Donald Trump's uh, um, focus on the wall was, was not simply another case of American exceptionalism. It's something that we're seeing right across the the, the developed and the industrial world, but also in in many uh, emerging uh, countries as well. Um, And that, I suppose, brings us to this question of of the sort of self-help. If if migration isn't going to disappear and is, in fact, according to your predictions, going to carry on growing inexorably in the future, um, how do we stop that from turning our politics toxic? How do we stop? um ourselves from entering into a much more target world where uh you know it's all about protecting the borders and trying to create <laughs> some sort of notion of of um of, of static life and ethnic purity um as through all of these territorial defenses. Um mm-hmm. In my book, I kind of lay out a five step program for this, the Age of Unpeace based around this sort of idea of of trying to to take the sting out of interdependence or what I call disarming connectivity. So maybe we can use that as a framework for talking about about migration in line with your book. So the first step with all therapy programs is to face up to the problem um can you i mean we in a way we've got the sort of essence of the problem which is that globalization seems to be um sorry uh, the migration seems to be um growing exponentially um and that that is kind of f- both creating kind of winners and giving people an opportunity to, to follow their dreams, but it is also leading to insecurity and to sort of backlash in many places. Is that the problem or is there another problem when it comes to, to kind of mass migration?
1: Well, let's, let's indeed start with facing up to the problem because the problem for most countries is not immigration, but emigration, you know? And I have a long passage in MOVE, which is pretty blunt about the failures of nationalist populism and anti-immigration sentiment, because the countries that embody that vibe, um, whether it is Turkey or Russia or India or a handful of Eastern European countries, are precisely the world's largest sources of uh, immigrants. In other words, They are places that people are leaving. They are not admirable societies by any stretch of the imagination. So let's remember that we're talking about migration as a problem. The problem is for countries that illustrate the anti-immigrant sentiment is that they are themselves the largest sources of emigrants because they're poorly run countries. Now that tells us a lot of things. We should not exactly be conflating people and their regimes. You cannot look at Turkey and see uh, a society that is moved in the, collectively in the direction of supporting strongman authoritarianism and nationalist fervor, when if you talk to your average Turk, they'd love to get out. And the lens I use to illustrate this irony is conscription. I looked in this book at every country in the world that has mandatory conscription. And then I looked at the behavior of the typical 18-year-old male. And guess what I found, Mark? The rite of passage for any 18-year-old male in Turkey is to save up uh, enough lira to bribe your way out of military service and do whatever you can to get the hell out of the country. So that to me is not an example of some, you know, uniform social lurch towards nationalist, populist, anti-foreign sentiment. So we have to be really clear about that.
0: The second part, yeah. just on that one, aren't the two slightly related to each other? though? Because if they kind of educated and uh, the mobile people in the country leave and leave in large numbers, that does create a uh, uh, a sense that the country's dying out if you look at uh, you know Hungary or Romania or Bulgaria where you've lost you know up to one in five people um so you can see your city your cities um emptying out there's a brain drain a lot of the sort of best and the brightest have disappeared and then uh you know your birth rates are falling and then you see migrants coming in and who have look physically different from yourself so there's a, a sense of being kind of squeezed on the one hand you're losing your brightest and your best and at the same time they're being replaced by by foreigners and that um is one of the things that seems to be driving this rise in in nationalism because people have a sense that their countries are kind of being emptied out and and literally being replaced and that is very much the the kind of narrative of the far right at the moment. In Trump, he was focused on 2047, I think, which is when the whites become a minority in in the US. In France, there's this idea of le le grand remplacement about people being replaced um, as a result of of globalization. So the two aren't necessarily unrelated. Absolutely. But again, you know, the the second
1: part of this is that if you look at these countries that have again anti-immigrant sentiment, Uh, it is their own fault that people are leaving their countries. The fact that borders have opened through the process of joining the European Union does not mean that had you not been a member of the European Union that these people would have been denied uh, exit from their own country. So the fact is that you cannot sugarcoat your poor governance. Let's look at Italy, a country where whether or not it was, you know, whether or not there's a European Union, Italians can move freely. And the fact is that Matteo Salvini's Five Star Movement and their regressive population you demographic like huh?
0: Salvini's like a movement.
1: Yeah, sorry, that's right. Uh, but the the this, this sort of very conservative orientation around saying that you know we are a dying nation our population is declining, women need to stay home and make babies, which is literally words out of his mouth. You know what that did in the period of 2016 to 2019, Mark? It simply drove Italian women to leave Italy. So it's counterproductive at best, right? Um, So the point is, what is the policy besides saying I am against migrants because like you said step one let's face up to the problem you are the problem right
0: (laughs) yeah no well let's go to step two then so the problem is basically both people coming in and people leaving um as a result of of um supply and demand um of of these different things so again again
1: mark i mean the point of psychoanalysis of 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 self-help of therapy is to is to uh, cut out the the sort of um, the the sort of disclaimers before your point. The problem is you. If you are the government of Bulgaria or Romania or Hungary, you are the problem. Please admit that you are the problem. Don't blame your own people who have left. Don't blame the people who are coming. Go to first root causes and admit and confess like an alcoholic you have a problem. You are a shit government, right? That's where, that's how true, you know, sort of therapy that, you know, you're not really doing step one, right. If you're not confessing that you suck as a government, let me say it in my best American English, right? So that is the problem. And when you, when we get to that stage and we agree, fortunately, neither of us is the, is Victor Orban, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, I think that, you know, only when we accept and they get to the root cause, then we can start to have a better solution. Because the solution should not be, I'm going to kick more people, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to scare more of my own citizens away, because that path leads to suicide. We're not really helping the patient, uh, if we don't get them to realize that it's their own fault.
0: So that brings us to step two, which I I, I said, establish healthy boundaries, because I, I kind of think that Paradoxically, the best way to unite the world and to make people feel comfortable um, about our levels of connectivity is to create enough distance so that people feel safe and in control. And I think the dividing line on globalization shouldn't be between open and closed, but rather between managed and unmanaged togetherness. And that's true on everything from from trade and technology to to cultural change. But I think the place where it's it's definitely most uh, true is is on migration, because both when it comes to, to thinking about how you keep people in your country and you stop people wanting to leave, but also um, the question of, about uh, how you decide who's allowed into your country. These are things where where the public definitely doesn't want things to be out of control and chaotic and kind of crazy scenes along the borders. That is seems to be the ultimate cause of populism. So um, you argue for more mobility and, and less borders. But presumably, you don't think that migration should be totally unmanaged?
1: No, not at all. I mean, if anything, look, I'm a Wilsonian, right? I mean, I actually have long advocated for more borders in the sense that uh, I believe every tribe deserves to have its own state, uh, you know, in that sense. So uh, but I also believe that having more and more borders is a stage of evolution on the pathway towards having therefore more settlement of borders and therefore ultimately more, you know, more exchange across those borders, but only when they're settled. And that's the story of Europe, of Europe obviously, in the post-war decades, and it's happening in other parts of the world as well. So I'm not for open borders for the sake of, I'm for managed globalization and for managed migration. And if you look at the specific instance of Germany in the aftermath of the Syrian refugee crisis, as you well know, uh, you know, Angela Merkel had to make concessions to the right you know, sort of wing of her party and significantly curtail migration in order to maintain the political consensus that ultimately resulted in A, some degree, though significantly reduced, of uh, of migration continuing and, and refugees and asylum seekers being absorbed. And secondly, to having that far right more or less disappear because, as you well know, uh, very recently in Germany's election, you didn't really have the AfD surge to victory, right? Quite the contrary, you have a center-left coalition uh, forming more or less, and center-left parties, you know, are, 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 are you know sort of have that humanitarian impulse and have witnessed the country successfully integrate many of the migrants who have come in the last uh, six, seven, or really ten years. More broadly. So that's how managed migration can be uh, you know, sort of win-win for those who make it in and certainly uh, help to reinforce the country's. Uh you know,
0: economic model and its industrial base and so forth. So apart from Germany, who do you think is is doing the best job in the world at at managing migration? Oh, well, it's obviously Canada,
1: right? So if you take, uh, you know, no country in the world, sort of pound for pound per capita is importing as many people every year as Canada, because with less than 40 million people, they have a target of 400,000 new migrants every year, every single one of whom is on an immediate pathway towards permanent residency or citizenship. um, and obviously, that's, uh, you know, in some years, it's, it's nipping at the number of people who move into the U.S., but with only uh, one tenth the population of the U.S. So Canada is remarkable. And of course, they, too, recently had an election where there was no anti-immigrant backlash. So I would, A, the lesson from this is to reject the very notion that there's any kind of Western conundrum uh, over migration, because, quite frankly, some of the leading societies of the West, Germany and Canada, are exemplary examples of how to manage this you know on the Canada doing so very strategically premeditatedly proactively um and on its own terms Germany of course doing so a bit more reactively but making the most of a very delicate situation so I would reject the notion that the Anglo-American paroxysms you know over migration are representative of the West and let's remember I mean Mark you've referred to to Trump a couple of
0: times for many people around the world, Canada is their like ultimate dystopia. It's the sort of communitarian dream where you have these different communities living side by side with very little contact with each other. There's a very thin notion of what it means to be Canadian. A few kind of jokey things around lumberjacks and, and maple leaves and things like that, and maybe a bit of ice hockey. But the, the 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 kind of cultural depth of Canadian identity is 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 very thin compared to you know, even American identity, let alone, um, uh, you know, European countries.
1: Well, I'm sure there's 40 million Canadians who would take umbrage at what you just said, but I'm not going to speak on their behalf. I'll simply say that it's a supply and demand situation. It's a competitive marketplace for talent. And if you are a country who's losing talent to Canada, you're not in much of a position to talk right now. uh, Because again, you're a place that people want to leave, whereas Canada is a place that people want to go. And it's certainly not second rate people who they're attracting. So, you know, let's put that to the side and just point out um, that again, there is no Western, you know, position that you can characterize as being, you know, excessively populist and nationalist. And let's remember, again, you referred to Trump several times. He's not president of the United States anymore, right? Biden is. And Biden wants to have a legal pathway to citizenship for 10 plus million undocumented migrants. He's expanded the H-1B visa quota. He's guaranteeing the right to work for spouses of H-1B holders. He's letting in uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, climate migrants and asylum seekers from Latin American countries. He is in this narrow issue of trying to manage the overwhelming numbers of Central American migrants waiting at the border, trying to manage that in a way that is not logistically overwhelming and that's not not coming across well optically. uh, But he's in a very difficult situation that he inherited. So I want to just remind everyone that America is back to being a mass migration society and Donald Trump is not the president of the United States. So again, you would really only have to look at very specific cases like the UK that have massively bungled immigration. And there too, you see that countries can either learn their lessons the hard way or the easy way. And Britain is learning the hard way, right? I mean, would you want to repeat the experience of having 50,000 nurses in shortage in your NHS and having, you know, 100,000 truck drivers less than you need right now? I don't think that the UK is, you know, the kind of country that anyone admires when it comes to their immigration policy.
0: Well, the UK, um, you know, over the last few decades has, has been having net inflows of, of three to four hundred thousand um, people uh, every every year. So um, I agree that the, the the kind of management of it, and certainly the management of the public debate about it, um, has uh, a lot to be. Um, uh, has <laughs> <analyzed>. <laughs> but um but uh you know if it, the uk is more of a country of migration than, than pretty much any other european country and certainly um uh that migration is, is a sort of uh um a mix uh an interesting mix of, of people from, from different parts of the world even after after brexit right? i totally agree with that but let, let's maybe move on to the third step of our therapy program which is we've been talking a lot about management and about what governments can do but my sort of third principle given that everyone's so obsessed with taking back control is to be realistic about what we can control i mean one of the features of interdependence is that any country even one as large as the united states of america uh, you know, is only controlling a small part of these kind of big planetary uh, forces. Um, what does, what do you think, I mean, how much control can you actually have when it comes to, to migration as a, as a country? How much of it is simply about, um, you know, deciding whether you want people to do it legally or illegally <laughs> versus actually being able to, to determine how many people are coming in or out of your country?
1: Well, quite frankly, there can be a lot of control because this is one of the most sensitive and primary arenas of national sovereignty. And in fact, sovereignty is eroded in so many areas. But one area where it remains quite robust is a country's right to deny entry to people from other countries. We, we have very, very thin uh, global you know, accords around that are normative in nature and prescriptive around that is, you know, sort of having free mobility of labor and this kind of thing, but nothing of the sort corresponds to reality. So, you know, I think that we will have a common policy on how to colonize the moon before we'll actually have a global migration accord. So this is the one vestige of sovereignty that will remain till the bitter end. So countries have that right. The question is, are they doing it? Are they managing it correctly? Um, You know, are they doing a smart enough job in terms of their uh, demographic uh, forecasting, their demand forecasting, their skills forecasting, and looking at the countries of origin and the skills required for their economy. And let's face it, when you hand your immigration policy over to uh, you know incompetent populists, you're not really going to wind up with a happy outcome. Whereas if you hand it over to people who actually study these things in a less politicized way and have the best interest of the country's economy and society and welfare at heart, you're probably going to wind up with a better Uh, outcome or ideally a marriage, you know, of political support that articulates the the need and uh, kind of, you know, technocratic forces that manage the process. And that's, again, Canada, you know, where
0: they've done it right. And, uh, you know, Singapore and other places. So you talked about this notion of of civilization 3.0. Could you explain a bit more about what you mean by it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that we need to encourage more sort of fluid fluidity and and circulation of people, not in a lawless or unlawful way, but rather, in a in such a way that we obviously, uh, first and foremost, focus on the most vulnerable. 1.0 and 2.0
0: were. Oh,
1: sure. Well, civilization 1.0 goes back to our ancient roots as uh, as nomadic, uh, you know, populations and and uh, agricultural peoples, and the civilization 2.0 is the more recent centuries where we've been more sedentary and industrial. But in light of global labor shortages, the demographic plateau in the world population, and climate change, we need to think about how you know, billions of people who are quite vulnerable uh, for whom climate adaptation is an immediate priority, well, the surest path to climate adaptation is mobility, is migration. It doesn't always mean crossing a border, but it does mean relocating from the vulnerable geographies that one is in. So I'm advocating of, that the world population be more Uh, again, more mobile, uh, but also more sustainable. And that our migration be done more sustainably, both ecologically in terms of infrastructure and resource consumption, and also politically, of course, in terms of sensitivities and assimilation.
0: So that really is is very much about my fourth step, which is how you take care of yourself. Because I think the biggest challenge to to the liberal order often comes from within our divided societies. And that's where we're going to need to focus a lot of attention. How do you think societies need to change so that they can deal with, with uh, this increased mobility that, that you are talking about?
1: Well, assimilation and forging a national a civic identity is itself a strategic priority and should be. You can't let these things just organically emerge because they may not. And if you look at a place like uh, the Netherlands with its language requirement, um, or if you look at a place like Singapore, where all races and creeds serve together in you know a national service and and, um, and in uh, in public housing and uh, and other sorts of you know sort of these sorts of assimilation policies, we need to invest a lot in that if we want to ensure that the inevitable migrations are better managed, uh, you know, actively rather than passively. And again, every you know, if we're looking at Europe. Uh, You know, countries have a sovereign right to decide for themselves whether or not that means that you must learn the language as a precursor to citizenship, or whether or not you're allowed to wear a headscarf, and these kinds of questions. Um, But at the end of the day, just remember that from a numbers standpoint, uh, fundamentally you know, we need to come to grips with the fact that nothing is being done successfully to reverse our declining fertility and our, you know, accelerating mortality um, and our declining population. Now, you can attempt a degrowth kind of scenario, um, but ultimately what you're doing is short-circuiting or undermining your own services economy. So I think that we have to you know, accept the fact that migrations are necessary for our own demographic vitality and put more resources into assimilation and, and building a national
0: national identity. So this brings me to the final step of our therapy, which is um, seeking real consent. We know from all human relationships that the, the single principle that is the key to any kind of legitimacy is consent. What you're talking about is kind of big changes, and you just mentioned some of the steps that might help to build consent um, within our societies, lots of people um, say that they're in favour of, of managed migration, so as people follow the rules, and that question of what the rules are is obviously an important one, but do you, how do you think you can build more consent and legitimacy for, for your idea of civilization 3.0? Are there things that the Canadians do which um, or, or other countries do which you think has helped to to, to get the public on side for, uh, for, for this era of, of mass mobility?
1: Well, nothing succeeds like success. And there is a FOMO effect going on. Countries are seeing canada and germany and saying hey how come they're the ones who are getting the the talent and the best and the brightest and their economies are thriving and they're maintaining a high standard of living and you know stimulating entrepreneurship and new industries and we are withering right so if you take a country like poland poland has started to say okay well we're going to eliminate all tax all income tax on millennials you know and hopefully that'll keep polish youth in poland and maybe even attract some nomad remote workers and that kind of thing so can Competitive dynamics are a very powerful force. You know, uh, smart city, smart nation, quality of nationality rankings that we have all the time. We're ranking each other every single minute. So countries look at that and they say, how come I'm falling down the ladder of respectability and credibility? What am I doing wrong? What are these countries doing right? And surprise, surprise, Mark, you know, the admired societies, the successful societies, Are ones that are actually attracting youth. So the number one barometer, and this is, I think, maybe a good place to close of success in the 21st century is actually something very, very basic. If your country is attracting young people, then you are doing something right. If your country is losing young people you are doing something wrong. And there's no simpler remedy to the world's problems than to get countries to start to do the things that will make them attractive to young people. And that's something, Mark, you and I could explain to a four-year-old, and it also happens to be true.
0: But at the same time, you have lots of different groups of society. So the US in a way is you know a perfect uh, petri dish for, for what you're talking about. It's done a fantastic job of attracting young people If it was a bit easier to get in, there'd be many multiples of the young people (laughs) that are going to the the U.S. legally and illegally every year. Um, American wealth has been built by immigrants. It is the kind of ultimate uh, case study of of integration and of development. Almost all the great companies and technologies (laughs) and ideas that there are in America (laughs) have come from outside of the country. And, and yeah, there are, you know, maybe not enough people to have allowed Donald Trump to win the last election, but enough to make him look like he might win the next one. Um, and certainly enough to to elect him as, as president in 2016. Um, and it shows that consent is a is a complicated thing. All the things that are very attractive to some groups in, in the US, uh, you know, ideas of, of diversity, ideas of, 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 um, of changing the, the kind of national identity of different rights for different groups of people, are toxic for, for others who fear that they're, you know, to, coin the, to, to quote the phrase, which is most often heard, they, they're becoming strangers in their own country. How do you kind of balance those sentiments? How do you get consent both from the old people um, who already live in the country, as well as the young ones that you're trying to attract.
1: It's a very, very well put, uh, you know, observation and question. And the, and the the first thing is to remember that even during Donald Trump's presidency, we have the benefit of the U.S. Census having just been released this past September. And what does the census show, Mark? In the in, right under Donald Trump's nose, America became more diverse, more mixed race, more Latino all under his nose. So America continues to be America, migrants continue to pour in one way or the other, and American society continues to be enlarged and enriched as a result of it, no matter what Donald Trump thinks, no matter what his supporters want. So we have to remember that you should not conflate the wall with American policy in that sense, or even one ethnic group's viewpoint, even if it prevails in an election, with even representing the outcome in immigration policy, because America just continues to be that magnet. And that's great for America. However, even if there are these population groups, these ethnic groups that feel aggrieved and disenfranchised, marginalized and becoming strangers in their own land, I absolutely think that You know, again, it's still their country as much as anyone else's country, Uh, and they, you know, are they are not actually literally being marginalized. You can't say on the one hand that you got Donald Trump elected president and then on the other hand, say that you have by some uh, conspiratorial force been robbed of your rights. Um, I do think that we need a lot more mutual accommodation, obviously, and that can be done through one of the steps that we were talking about earlier, which is a recognition of what the benefits are. Uh, that, that immigrant communities provide to um uh, to to the nation as a whole and what they give back and where they're needed most and these kinds of things and that dialogue doesn't really take place when we focus you know only at the at the rhetorical uh, level again i do think that Amer- america is not the kind of place where the government prescribes in a top-down way what americanness is or means but if you even take a country that ought to be struggling with this a lot more than America, and that's Germany, they are having this conversation about what Germanness means, and it doesn't require the kind of, you know, political violence that you're having in the United States to have that conversation. So it's sort of, you know, shame on America, quite frankly, I say as an American, for not having a healthy dialogue and an honest dialogue uh, about uh, the, the benefits and the challenges, but then working to solutions on that assimilation. Uh, but I do think that that, uh, that can happen, and that's part of what the biden administration's uh, uh priority is
0: okay i'm not sure we completely uh got to the end of our therapy here but that's unfortunately all we have time for <laughs> today I'd like to thank my special guest Parag Kanna for joining me for a fascinating conversation in this special edition of the podcast. We will put links to uh, Parag's new book Move on our on our website, as well as um, some of the other uh, publications which are mentioned in this series that are uh, which is at www.ecfr.eu/podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by giving us a good rating and a review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast. But for now, from Parag Khanna and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast mini-series are Sancha Green and Lucy Halpentard, and our editor this week is Marlene Riedel.